0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 18. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Hernando de Soto, part two. I'm recording it on April 22nd, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Last week, we introduced the story of Hernando de Soto's three-year invasion of the American South from 1539 to his death in 1542. Ending the episode just as his 600-man expedition arrived on the Gulf Coast of Florida, probably Tampa Bay. Ponce de Leon had gone ashore in roughly the same place in 1521, and Panfilo de Narvaez had disembarked his doomed expedition there in 1528. Soto, like Ponce and Narvaez before him, would claim all of North America for Spain from roughly the same spot. He would survive longer than either Ponce or Nervais, but not by much. Claiming North America for Spain was a dangerous business. Rather than dragging you painstakingly along as Soto and his men scramble around 10 southern states, I'm gonna experiment with telling Soto's story and themes. First, we'll talk about Soto as a person. Then we'll do an overview of the route he and his men took over three years, and their ever more desperate search to find the next great, rich, golden Indian civilization. After that, we'll roll back to the landing zone at Tampa Bay and hit some of the more interesting parts of the journey, or at least those that are interesting to me. So we'll do a series of vignettes, if you will, in chronological order, but there will be big gaps that the Soto nerds out there would castigate me for punting. Don't worry, I don't think you're missing anything that you really care about. Finally, we'll return to the strange question of all the places in the country that are named after De Soto, notwithstanding what we all now know, that Soto crashed and burned. And anyway, he would have named those places Soto. Soto, more than any of the other conquistadors that came before him, had grown up in the profession— Soto was born in 1500 on the border with Portugal and southwestern Spain into a minor noble family of very modest means. The class of such people were called Hidagos, meaning literally, and in the singular, the son of someone. Not much is known about Soto's childhood, but it is more than a fair bet that he grew up in the saddle, raised in the horse culture of that region— It was a rough and dangerous land, especially between the towns where bandits and brigands lay in wait for the undefended traveler, and every man of any means at all learned to fight. In the words of one biographer, to be a Hildago meant never to leave home without a weapon. With no prospects at home, many Hildagos of the region left to seek their fortune, often at ages that would shock American parents today. In 1513 or 1514, at age 13 or 14, Soto sailed to Panama as a flunky in one of the expeditions of the era, probably among the 2,000 colonists in the armada of Pedro Rios de Vila, the new governor. Soto would remain in the new world with violent men as his only mentors for the next 22 years. Pedro Rios was loathsome even by the standards of the day. He was paranoid, and not only was extremely violent toward the Indians, that was fairly de rigueur among conquistadors, but suspicious and vengeful toward his own men, like the worst sort of degraded mob boss. Pedro Rios was no servant leader, to use the management jargon of our time. One tiny example of many, Pedro Rios executed his own son-in-law, Vasco Nunez de Balboa, the famous discoverer of the Pacific Ocean, on a trumped-up charge of treason. The real reason was paranoia and spite. Balboa had outshined him. Soto proved himself to be incredibly adaptive, not only to the new world, no mean feat, given the trivially short lifespan of Europeans in the Americas in those days, but to life as a conquistador. He rose rapidly through guile and guts and luck. At age 17, he formed a partnership with two other young Spaniards whereupon they agreed to split all their profits equally among them. This would motivate each to support the others politically, socially, and militarily, which would be an important protective alliance in the years to come. At age 18, he joined Balboa on his South Sea expedition, the South Sea being the Spanish term for the Pacific, since Balboa found it by traveling south through Panama. By age 19, he'd become a field captain in the conquest of western Panama, and by age 21, he owned his own plantation in Nata, Panama, which sits on the Pacific southwest of Panama City. In 1524, when Soto was... 24, he was a battalion commander in the conquest of Nicaragua. When a mini-civil war broke out among the various conquistadors, Soto was captured, tossed in jail, from which he escaped, and then made his way through hundreds of miles of Central American jungle to warn Pedro rias Pedro rias gave him command of an army to put down the rebellion, which Soto proceeded to do. And we haven't even gotten to the conquest of Peru. From 1524 to 1529, Soto worked the Spanish colonial politics brilliantly, sometimes with Pedro Rios and sometimes against him, always watching his back so he didn't suffer the fate of Balboa, and with his partners built up a substantial fortune. They owned plantations, gold mines, a slaving business, and a shipping company. By age 28, Soto was a major force in the region. All of this happened before Panfilo de Nervice had launched his own disastrous expedition to line it up against our own timeline. In the meantime, Francisco Pizarro had scouted Peru, seen evidence of vast wealth, and gone off to Spain to get a patent from King Charles V to conquer it. In 1530, Soto and his surviving partner signed a contract with Pizarro to invest in and participate in the conquest of Peru. And from 1531 to 1535, Soto was so important to the conquest of the Incas that there's a solid case to be made that Pizarro couldn't have done it without him. So, naturally, Pizarro fired him. By 1536, Soto's back in Spain for the first time since he was but a lad, now immensely wealthy, experienced, and ambitious. Let's ponder this a bit. Today we are very concerned that young people have the right role models, lest they end up, as we used to say, delinquent. Soto's role models from age 14 were freaking conquistadors, some reasonably decent as conquistadors go, some depraved even by their standards. Soto's role models, such as they were, shaped him, and he did as he was taught, superlatively. Make of that what you will. Regardless, by 36, Soto was confident and bold, sometimes to the point of recklessness, decisive, always laser-focused on his next objective, a skilled planner of conquest, Stubborn, ruthless when in the service of his objectives, but not gratuitously so. Quick to anger, and equally quick to calm that anger when it was in his practical interest to do so. All of these traits would emerge in North America. When Soto got back to Spain in 1536, he got in touch with all the influential people with whom he had linked in, figuratively speaking, of course, and received an enthusiastic response from the widow of that old bad guy, Pedro Rias Davila. In addition to her political support for his next mission, she proposed that he marry one of her daughters, one Isabel de Bobadilla. David Ewing Duncan's description identifies the practicality in all of this. Quote, this was her third-born child, who in 1535 and 36 must have been at least in her late 20s. This suggests she may have been a widow, or somehow undesirable as a mate, since typically a woman in a highborn family was married by that age. Possibly she had had trouble bearing children in a previous marriage, a theory borne out by the fact that she and Soto had no children during the three years they were together. She also may have been simply unattractive in some way, a notion suggested by the lack of effusive adjectives provided by any of the La Florida chroniclers. Even the Inca says only that Isabel was a, quote, woman of much goodness and discretion, a remarkably downbeat description for this romanticist. The Inca's brief description was apt, however, for a woman who would serve as acting governor of Cuba in Soto's absence and prove extremely capable as an administrator and woman of affairs. The Inca's assessment was also shared by Ron Hell, who tells us that the younger Isabel inherited her mother's fortitude, intelligence, and strength of character. Quote, like her mother, Ron Hell writes, she was, quote, a woman of great essence and goodness and a very noble judgment and character. Soto himself confirms her abilities by the fact he named her acting governor an unusual appointment for a woman in 16th-century Spain. I hope all of this adds up to a clear enough picture of Soto. For more of that, I do recommend Duncan's book, Hernando de Soto, A Savage Quest in the Americas. Duncan is a bit judgier of Soto than I am, but his book is a very entertaining read for those of you who want to dig deeper. Now let's look at Soto's route. Scholars have been arguing over the details of his route for years, and for good reason. If you are looking for new archaeological sites that might bear clues of Soto's army, you can't just start digging holes. You need to make the best possible bet that your labors will bear fruit. Further, each archaeological discovery might confirm or invalidate the previous or subsequent point on the route, So the stakes can be high and there's plenty to argue about even when evidence does surface in the right layer of soil. Was that early 16th century Venetian bead left here by Soto's expeditionaries? Or did they trade it to Indians somewhere else only for the new owner to schlep it over here? And of course, professional reputations swing high and low with each confirmation or invalidation. Regardless, not being a Soto nerd, I'll help you find your own way by putting a couple of the competing maps on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and by giving you a complete rundown, in general, of the route. So here goes. From Tampa Bay or thereabouts, Soto headed into central Florida, much as Narvice had done, cutting west to Tallahassee, which was Appalachie before crossing the Georgia Line. After some time in the Central Panhandle, the Entrada pointed north into Georgia for a stretch running parallel to the Alabama Line before cutting northeast into South Carolina to some point west by northwest of Columbia. From there, the Army pivoted to the northwest, roughly toward Asheville and then Knoxville before heading southwest again across the northwest corner of Georgia to Montgomery, Alabama. Then northwest again, past Selma into Mississippi, reaching the eponymous Mighty River at some point a bit south of Memphis. The expedition at this point, a couple of years along and both ragtag and exhausted, crossed into Arkansas, meandering around there doing whatever one did in Arkansas back then. Soto would die in Arkansas, and the remnants of the expedition would make its way back to Mexico, and yet another impressive story of survival. Soto would touch at least eight American states, Florida, Georgia, both Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas, and the remnants would explore northeastern Texas and Louisiana on their way back to what we might laughingly call civilization. The Soto Entrada would have been SEC fans. Or maybe not. Anyway, now on to the promised vignettes. Soto's ships had first spotted the coast of Florida on May 25th, 1539, and spent the next few days scouting for a good place to land. The horses were weakening in the slings in which they traveled in the hold of the ships, and 20 had already died. By May 30th, Soto decided he had to disembark, if for no other reason than to save the horses, and the expedition did so over a period of several days. The site of the original encampment is probably in the area of Tampa Bay, but there's so little evidence and so much ambiguity in the archaeological record that nobody can say for sure where it was. The Indians who lived in the area belonged to a tribe called the Timucuan which in those days occupied the upper half of the Florida Peninsula. Here's what Duncan says about them. Little is known about this long extinct people. Shortly after Soto's visit, they began dying by the thousands from disease and the aftermath of Soto's entrada, dwindling to only a few hundred by the time a combined British and Creek army invaded North Florida in the 18th century and finished them off. Thanks to Soto's chronicles and archaeologist digs, we know that Timucuans worshipped the sun, built earthen mounds to elevate their palaces and temples, etched tattoos of birds, snakes, and geometric designs on their bodies, and were dominated by chiefs who ruled clusters of towns and villages that provided them with tribute. In many ways, they resembled the high Mississippian cultures Soto would encounter later on. That their art was cruder, their political structures less absolute, and their cities smaller, the Timucuans being the equivalent of country cousins to the highly sophisticated kingdoms and empires to the north. The Timucuans, like the Calusa to the south, knew something of the Spanish. Remember, Indian refugees from the Caribbean had fled Spanish slavers by going to Florida, so they kept their distance. They constantly frustrated Soto during the six weeks or so the expedition camped at the original beachhead, insofar as they proved damnably difficult to capture and interrogate. Worse, when the Timicuan did engage, they were formidable fighters, the most fearsome that Soto had ever encountered, including the Incas. Duncan again. Their secret was a weapon unheard of anywhere else in the Indies, the longbow. Indeed, the governor general had not faced such deadly bows and arrows since his late teens in Columbia during the disastrous expedition up the Atrato River, where the 17-year-old Soto and his fellow conquistadors were turned back by fighters shooting tiny dart-like arrows tipped in poison. McEwans and other Mississippians used no poison. What made their bows so formidable was their size, as thick as an arm, six or seven feet long and their deadly accuracy when fired from as far away as 200 paces. Soto's men had great difficulty even bending these bows as tall as a man, used by the Indians to shoot arrows capable of piercing iron mail as deeply as a crossbow, made of certain reeds like canes. Elvis says the arrows were very heavy and so tough that a sharpened cane passes through a shield. Some are pointed with a fishbone as sharp as an awl, and others with a certain stone like a diamond point. Generally, when these strike against armor, they break off at the place where they are fastened on. Those of cane split and enter through the links of mail and are more hurtful. In any case, Soto did eventually manage to get some Indians to interrogate and, if possible, turn into guides. One day, a Spanish scouting party on horseback surprised a group of 20 or so Indians in a big clearing and was able to run them to ground and capture a few. The last one fleeing turned, raised his hands and started spewing out Spanish words. He was Juan Ortiz, and devoted listeners will remember that we have seen him before, 11 years ago in terms of the history of the Americans' timeline. During episode 13 the second in the Cabeza de Vaca saga. Recall that in the spring of 1528, in approximately the same place, Panfilo de Navais had made the poor decision to take his expedition inland without establishing a known destination to rendezvous with his fleet. The fleet searched for the Navais expeditionaries for a year and at one point fell into a trap set by a local chief named Hirahigua, who sought revenge against the Spanish for various indignities, including that they had cut off his nose. Hirohigu left what appeared to be a paper note stuck in the notch in a split cane embedded in the sand on the beach. The Spanish, thinking that Nevise had left the note, sent two men ashore on a rowboat to retrieve it. The Indians ambushed him, killing one of them and capturing the other, Juan Artis. Now Soto had rescued him. Today, Today, I consider consider myself myself the luckiest luckiest man man on the face of the the earth. earth. Okay, Juan Ortiz definitely didn't sound like Lou Gehrig, but I've been looking for a spot to use that clip, and this seems like a good one. Regardless, the noseless Hira got his revenge, but the karmic blowback for other Indians years later would be bloody indeed. Soto now had a translator who would tremendously improve the efficiency of his interrogations. Before we get to that, though, let's see what happened to Ortiz, a fifth survivor of the Narvice catastrophe, in the years since. Picking up Duncan's version now. Carrying Juan Ortiz back to their village, the Indians tortured the boy by flaying him over a fire on a grill laid on top of four stakes. A cruelty Garcilazo the Inca blames on the same chief who is now eluding Soto. Garcilazo insists that this was no wanton torture, however, but revenge for cruelties inflicted on this chief by Narvaez, who, among other atrocities, cut off Hirahigua's nose and murdered his mother. Hirahigua's vengeance nearly killed Juan Ortiz, half-roasted over the fire the heat against his skin, seared blisters on that side as large as half oranges. He would have died except for the intervention of a most unlikely intermediary, the chief's daughter. This young woman apparently took a liking to Juan Ortiz in the short time he had been a captive, to the point that this native princess begged her father to spare the boy's life, which he did, though reluctantly. We should pause here and note the chief's daughters interfered to help Europeans over and over again in the history of the Americans. In episode six, the Admiral of the Ocean Sea, part four, the chief's daughter on Hispaniola came aboard the Santa Maria, and then helped persuade other local Indians not to run away, and promote a good relations between Columbus's men and her people, and of course. More than 70 years after Hirahigwu's daughter saved Juan Ortiz's life, Pocahontas would save John Smith's. Yeah, yeah, you're going to argue that that has all been debunked, and I'm going to argue that you are wrong. But we'll get there eventually. Back to Ortiz. Ortiz's life continued to be miserable as Hirahigwu enslaved him and forced him to endure hard labor and intermittent torture and abuse. Every time he remembered that the Spaniards under Nervais had thrown his mother to the dogs and left her to be eaten by them, says Garcilazzo, and when he went to blow his nose and could not find his nostrils, the devil possessed him to avenge himself on one Ortiz as if he had cut them off. One day, three years after Ortiz's capture, Hirohigua's rage reached the point where he decided to sacrifice the young Spaniard to the Timucuan gods, who apparently required human blood on very rare occasions. Elvis, in his recounting of the story, says this sacrifice was called for because a rival chief named Mokuso had attacked and burned down one of Hirohigua's villages, prompting the tribe's priests to declare their gods were thirsty for the blood of their Indians or any other people they could get. One artiste learned of Hirohigua's plans from the same daughter, had saved him before. Warning him the dread event would happen the following day, the princess implored the young Spaniard to flee to Mocoso's territory, where she told him he would be safe. This remarkable young woman then helped the young Spaniard sneak away late one night, guiding him beyond the edge of the village through the dense foliage and showing him the road to Mocoso's country, since he did not know the way. By morning, Ortiz was in Mocoso's capital, where he was welcomed by the chief and treated with great respect. Because, insists the romantic Garcilazo, this young chieftain was in love with the princess who had helped Juan Ortiz. It's more likely that Mocoso welcomed Ortiz because he knew it would irk his enemy, Hirohiguo. For the next nine years, Ortiz lived with Mocoso who treated him with kindness and honor and kept him constantly with him day and night, doing him much honor. Meanwhile, Juan Ortiz became, for all intents and purposes, an Indian, dressed in a breechcloth and a short grass skirt, tattooing his arms and carrying a bow and some arrows in his hands, as he gave up all hope of ever again seeing Spain or Spaniards. Close quote. And now Soto had him. Juan Ortiz would get his own revenge, which is not really a fair way of putting it, in at least two ways. First, until his death in the Arkansas winter, he would be the Entrada's communications officer, for want of a better term, of which more below. Second, Ortiz would specifically learn of a sneak attack by Indians against the Spanish, and his early warning would foil it at great cost to the attackers. Let's talk about this revenge business for a moment, because my lifelong love of irony drives me to tell the story that way. And at the same time, the individualist in me is a bit uncomfortable with it. Embedded in the Ortiz story, for want of a better term, is a notion of collective crime and revenge that is actually unfair to most of the people involved. Our vice had abused and disgraced a specific Indian, the chief Hirahigwu. That chief had then decided to torture another Spanish person who had not abused him to get revenge for his humiliation. Ortiz suffered comprehensively for an offense, it's fair to call it a crime for those of us who believe in common law, that he did not commit. My take, which I'm going to run with because of my irony thing, is that Ortiz would get his revenge in return. This is actually not fair to Ortiz. Ortiz was treated very well by Mocoso and his tribe, and there is no evidence that Ortiz wanted revenge against Indians in general. My point is not to imply that Ortiz was after revenge, only that it is ironic that by being rescued, as it were, by the Soto expedition, Narciso's cruelty and Herohigua’s misdirected retaliation would ripple forward and 11 years later result in a lot more Indian suffering, as we shall see. This is nothing less than a tragedy, in the Shakespearean sense. Now, Ortiz turned out to be an incredibly valuable communications officer to Soto, and when he would die a couple of years hence, the expedition would be in deep caca. Ortiz, of course, had learned only the language of the Indians of central Florida. So as the expedition moved north through the territory of the Appalachian and then into Georgia and beyond he would have lost his ability to interpret between Soto and the local Indians. He dealt with this by building a chain of interpreters, mostly captured Indians. Each new translator knew two languages, his own and that of an adjacent tribe. Ortiz would query each new tribe they encountered down the chain of bilingual interpreters, which at its greatest length numbered as many as 14 links. So here this man, now about 30, who had been a common sailor and captured at age 18 and almost tortured to death and had been living at the behest and sufferance of the hunter-gatherers in central Florida, built a complex game of telephone to provide Soto with intelligence. Parents, feel free to pause the podcast to explain the game of telephone to any young folks riding along in the car with you, in case schools don't teach it anymore. Now, those of us who are seasoned enough to have played the game of telephone, know that it results in a lot of misunderstanding. Those perfectly predictable misunderstandings, fed to Soto with his general inclination to hear what he wanted to hear, probably contributed to the wild goose-chased aspect of the Entrada in pursuit of a third golden civilization. None of that diminishes Ortiz's accomplishment as a story of human ingenuity and resilience. This is once again a good stopping place. Thank you for listening. The next time we will continue, and most likely wrap up, the Soto Entrada and its consequences. We will meet Tuscaloosa, not quite how it was pronounced, and again, a lot of people will die. And we will see the fading footprints of the catastrophic Narvaez expedition two more times. By now you know the drill, Please subscribe, bless us with five-star ratings, and if the spirit moves you, please write a review in Apple that may or may not be sincere, as long as it's glowing. More important than all of that, though, is that you tell people you know about the History of the Americans podcast either the old-fashioned way or on Facebook. But only tell people who like their history to be interesting, fun, and as free of tedious moralizing as we can manage in these times.